0: of skepticism and suspicion whenever we see organized religious folks talking about money you talk to anyone in our city and they'll tell you what they think about the church well all of that is just a way to get people's money organized religion that's what it is what it's about and so naturally we've sort of enter into a conversation about money in a church setting with a bit of skepticism and certainly with a bit of concern some reservation And I want you to know that same kind of concern and reservation is actually what birthed the text we're looking at today. If you listen carefully to the passage Joe just read for us, it shares your concern. It shares a bit of your reservation. In fact, the reason that this passage we're looking at today was written was because the world back then was in many ways similar to the world right now. If you remember reading through 1 Timothy, as we've been talking about it, this letter called 1 Timothy was written by a man named Paul who was an apostle. That means sent one of Jesus. Jesus had sent Paul to be his messenger. And so he's writing this letter called 1 Timothy to one of the guys he's been mentoring, a young pastor named Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of a church named Ephesus in a city called Ephesus. And there was lots of stuff going on in Ephesus that were Destructive and devastating and wrong. And so this letter is written in part to address those things. And Paul, if you remember, in the first week of this series, Paul writes about these false teachers and these false preachers that were standing in the pulpit and leading people astray. They were preaching at variance or a different doctrine from the gospel. And now in chapter six, in the passage Joe just read for us, we find out there's more sinister stuff to these guys. In fact, in verse 5, this is how Paul describes them. You can just hear it. They are people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Hear that? The same skepticism you bring in this morning is the concern Paul brings when he's talking about this text because there're some religious folks who believe that godliness is a means of gain. Gain there is this financial word. So what happened back then is the same thing you see happening now, which is that you had religious folks that figured out a way to make a buck off religion, right? You had shysters and charlatans who figured out that this is a great money-making scheme, and so they use godliness as a means of gain. And so Paul writes the passage we're looking at today. And what he wants to do is not only correct these charlatans, but he also wants to take that opportunity to address the whole church, all of us, and particularly address how we relate to money. He wants to talk to all of us about how we view, how we think about, how we relate to money. Now, some of you will be tempted to tune out because in your minds, you're thinking, okay, we're going to talk about money. I don't have money so that's great I don't have to pay attention to this right it works out for me that I just don't have any so this conversation might apply to some of the folks sitting around me but not to me you know what's very interesting if I were to ask you and I'm not going to but if I were to ask you is there anyone here who thinks they have enough money you know what's amazing none of us think we have enough We come from different economic backgrounds. We're in different income brackets. We have different paychecks, and yet nobody in the room thinks they have enough, right? Every one of us is pretty convinced we need a little bit more, right? In fact, in in some of your minds, you're even thinking, well, if I had as much as that guy, then I'd raise my hand, but I don't. I'm in my level. If I had what he had, then I'd be content, but All of us, it's amazing, whatever your background, whatever the size of your paycheck, whatever your bracket, all of us are pretty convinced we need a little bit more. And so this passage applies to us. You know why? This passage was not written for folks that are rich. Paul doesn't get to that till verse 17, something we'll deal with later. So in verse 17 of chapter 6, he's going to talk to the rich. This passage is not for those who are rich. This passage is for folks who want to be rich. This passage is not for folks who have a lot of money. This passage is for folks who are convinced they need more money. This passage is not for the wealthy only. This passage is for those who want to be wealthy. And so this passage applies just as equally to the CEO down in Center City, and to the homeless man standing in front of his building. And to all of us somewhere in between. Right? If I were to ask you, and this is one of those very hard questions to be honest with yourself about. But if I were to ask you, do you desire to be rich? If I were to ask you and an even harder question, this is what it's going to say in verse 10. Do you love money? If I were to ask you, are you convinced you need more of it? If, if the answer to any of that is maybe even, or yes, for sure, you need this passage. If you've ever played the lotto, you need this passage, right? Because all of us have a little bit of a thought of a little more money wouldn't hurt. All of us, I think, by and large, have this desire for more. And so this passage applies to us. We need the words that are spoken here. So I'm going to pray, ask God to help us hear his word, and then we'll hear them together. Let's pray together. Father, we pause simply to ask for ears. Jesus warned in one of the, the stories he told that the word of God can go out, but the cares of this world, including a love of money and a desire for stuff, can choke out the word of God. So before we even say more, we're, we're asking for your Holy Spirit himself to come and help us So that this word might not be choked out by the cares of this world, but that this word that you have for us might actually come through our ears, find rich soil in our hearts, grow and bear good fruit in our lives. This is our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, right off the bat, I need to say this about money, which is that as we're going to talk about it, I do want you to know that the Bible does not teach that money is inherently evil. The Bible doesn't teach that money is bad or it's inherently evil. The Bible doesn't teach anything like that. You should know that. In fact, the Bible has several examples of folks who were blessed with riches and blessed with wealth. God-approved, God-pleasing people who were blessed with wealth. So the Bible doesn't teach somehow that, you know, inherently being poor is somehow virtuous. But it does teach... That there are specific dangers that come from being rich. Let me say that again. The Bible doesn't teach that there's this inherent virtue in being poor, but the Bible is aware of the nature of money, and that one of the things that money does is it reveals what's going on in our hearts, and what we desire, and what we love, and so the Bible is very clear in its warnings, and its cautions about money. So while there's no virtue inherently in being poor, there is specific danger in being rich. And as this passage will show, that danger extends also to the desire to be rich and the love of money. In this passage, he's going to describe some of the things that are combined with a love for money, a desire to be rich. And he's going to essentially say that the desire to be rich is like a trap. Let me have you hear the text, verses 9 and 10. If you have a Bible, 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. It'll be on the screen as well. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. Essentially what the text is saying is, listen, if you have a love of money, if you have a desire to be rich, as it says in verse 9, it's going to lead to a host of other things. It's going to make you susceptible to a host of other temptations and to a host of other sins. Or as it says in verse 10, and if you look at verse 10, this is one of the most misquoted verses there is. Right? If you look at verse 10, we've got a saying that goes around that money is the root of all evil. Now that slogan is fine, but I want you to know that's not from the Bible. Because you have to look again at what the Bible says is the love of money. Again, we've already said money is in itself not evil or good. It's like food and sex. It's these things that God has given to us that we can either handle well or handle inappropriately. We can use or abuse. We can treat them as gifts, or we can turn them into gods. So money in itself is not evil. Here the text is saying the love of money is a root, not even the root, of all kinds of evil. And so the text isn't saying, look, behind and underneath all evil you're going to find money. The text is instead saying, listen, if you have a love for money... One of the things money does is it reveals your heart. If you treasure money over and above God, if you have a love for money, a desire to be rich, it is a root for all kinds of evil. That is that, if I could summarize what he's saying in these two verses, it'd be this. Your love for money is not going to remain safely tucked away in a corner of your heart. If you're following Jesus and you have this love of money, this desire to be rich, those two things will not coexist, cohabit well in your heart. One will eventually outwin the other. And if you think I can follow Jesus and desire to be rich and keep that desire tucked away, neatly confined in one corner of my heart, this text is saying that doesn't happen. Because what money does and a love for money and a desire to be rich is it's like a root that grows in your heart that spreads out and is going to lead to all kinds of other things. A love for money never stays confined neatly in a corner, right? It leads to other things. For example, if you have a love for money or a desire to be rich, you'll be tempted to cut corners, to make decisions and compromises that you wouldn't otherwise make to fib a little bit here, to be a little bit shady over there, to be dishonest in certain things, to take what isn't yours. You'll be tempted to worry. Some of us, for the lack of money, are so obsessed with it that we'll be tempted to worry. Some of us will be tempted to do all manners of things. For for others of us, the love of money or the desire to be rich will lead to other sins like jealousy or envy or covetousness. If you desire to be rich, if you have a love for money, what's going on in your mind? Why can't I have his job? Why can't I live in her house? Why can't I drive that car or go on that vacation? If I had that, my life would be better. If I had his life, my life would be better. Money never, the love of money never stays tucked away safely in a corner. Verse 10 is saying it's a kind of a root. That root system begins to grow. And if you can imagine the roots of this love going to every corner of your heart until this this root bears in your life nasty fruit, it's it's not going to stay contained. It's a root of all kinds of evil. So he warns the desire to be rich, the love of money is going to make you fall, verse 9, into temptation, verse 10, into a root of all kinds of evil. He also describes in verse 9 that the love of money, a desire to be rich, is a trap. If you look again at verse 9, it says, those who love money, who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare. Snare is another word for trap. In fact, one commentator says that the word there is the same word that's used for the kind of trap or a noose that was hidden to trap birds. And the idea with that kind of a trap was it was hidden. It was out of sight. You couldn't see it until the animal or the beast was caught in it. And he's saying a love of money, a desire to be rich, works that same way. It's not visible. It's unseen. You don't even know until it chokes your heart and has you. A a pastor named Tim Keller made a great observation about this. He said... In one place, in Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says the following. Just hear it so you hear his words. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So hear that. The Lord Jesus himself is saying, Listen, your life is not about how much stuff you have. It's not about who has the most toys. And so Jesus warns that, but there's this word in the beginning before he gives the warning, which is, take care, be on guard. Other translations will say, watch out, look out for covetousness. And, and Tim Keller makes the point of, why does Jesus add those words to this sin in a way that he doesn't for other words? You don't find, take care against adultery, or watch out, look out for hatred Why does this one have this particular warning of be on guard, look out, watch out, take care? And he said, here's the reason. Because this one has this hidden nature that's very different than the others. He was saying, for example, in his years of ministry, he's had people come to him and confess all kinds of things. People have confessed adultery and affairs and lust and hatred and relational problems. In all his years of ministry, he said, no one's ever walked into his office and said, I'm just greedy. I, I really just am materialistic. I just want a lot of stuff. I'm not generous. No one's ever done that. In fact, he said he once did a Bible study on the seven deadly sins. And almost prophetically, his wife said, you watch, the one on greed will be the least attended. And it was true. Because everyone's convinced, that's not me. Maybe some of the other ones, but that one doesn't apply to me. That's a poignant observation. In fact, I can tell you, we've been at this church now for four years. We've done soul care together. So we've talked through issues that some of you have never uttered to another human being. There have been all kinds of issues we've dealt with. In all these years, I can tell you, I've never had one conversation about, I think I struggle with money. I think I don't give enough. I think I want too much. I think I'm materialistic. I think I'm greedy. Because all of us are convinced that applies to the other guy. That's not me. And so Jesus says, watch out, look out, be careful, be on guard. The love of money, verse 9, is a snare. It's like a hidden trap. It's like the thing that you don't even know you're in it. Until it catches the beast. You don't even see it there until it holds you, until the root system is so deeply woven into your heart that it leads to all kinds of temptations. So he warns a desire to be rich, a love of money is going to make you fall into temptation. It's a root for all kinds of evil, it's a snare. He goes on also in verse 9 to say it also leads to senseless and harmful desires. Look at that in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and then he says, into many senseless and harmful desires. That is that when this root begins to grow in your heart and captures your heart, it suddenly begins to distort and contort all your desires. It, It says you become prone to senseless and harmful desires. That is that it suddenly messes with you, right? You can't, think straight. You can't see straight. When you have coveting going on in your heart, hear me, when you have coveting going on in your heart, it does something to your eyes because suddenly you become completely blind to all that you have and you only see what you don't. Hear that again. When you have a desire to be rich and a love for money, it affects your eyes because suddenly you only see what you don't have. You become completely blind to what you have and only see what you don't. When you're in this, luxuries become necessities for you. The line between what I want and what I need becomes so blurred that we can't tell the difference anymore between the two. When this thing captures my heart, what I want becomes what I need. And I have no more way of telling the difference between the two. This thing messes with you. And what you find is it's never enough. Nothing is ever going to be enough. Again, I say to you, no one in this room thinks they have enough. The people in this room make different levels. And yet, I'm telling you, none of us think we have enough. All of us are convinced we could use more. And it'll never be enough. In fact, listen to Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, because this verse captures it well. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. And he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The idea is, if you love money, I'm telling you, it'll never be enough. Keep this in the back of your mind. I'll give you a stat in a few minutes where this will hopefully make more sense. But I'm telling you, if you love money, the scripture warns, you'll never be satisfied with it. It'll it'll never be enough. It can never satisfy what you're looking for. It's sort of like drinking salt water to rid your thirst. Right? You see the irony of that? The irony of drinking salt water is the more I drink, the thirstier I become. That's the irony. That's the backwards way of this. You you drink it thinking it'll rid your thirst. The more you drink, the more thirsty you become. So likewise, the more you have, the more you'll be convinced you need. It'll never satisfy. Satisfy. It'll never quench. It'll never be enough. Because the love of money, the desire to be rich, leads you into many senseless and harmful desires. And when Paul's summarizing where this all leads, the results are not pretty. In fact, just here from the verses of what happens to those who love money and desire to be rich, verse 9 says it plunges people into ruin and destruction. Where is this all going to take you? Ruin and destruction. Verse 10, it is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith, that eventually this desire becomes so great that even Jesus isn't enough and you wander from the faith. Or verse 10, through this many have pierced themselves with many pangs. Literally the translation is they've impaled themselves through this desire, through this love. Now, if you're honest, maybe you're hearing me and you're going, I mean, this is all good for your cloistered church, but this doesn't make any sense in reality. I mean, in the real world, you're you're telling me a desire to be rich never hurt anybody. In the real world, you'd say maybe it's fine for your cloistered, closed-off small church with your religious talk, but in the real world, I mean, this is at the core of the American dream, a desire to be rich. And I'm telling you, this text is in the Bible so that Jesus can save you from the American dream. I am telling you, this text is in the Bible so that Jesus can save you from the American dream because I'm telling you, it will not pan out. And American history is littered with the bodies of people for whom the American dream turned into a nightmare because money will never get you what your heart longs for. American history is littered with the stories of those who prove this passage for us. I could tell you story after story. I read this week the story of a man named Jay Gould. Jay Gould lived in the 1800s. He was this railroad developer. I mean, so rich that even to this day, he is listed as the ninth richest man in the United States of American history. 1800s, ninth richest man. On his deathbed, it's reported that his dying words were, I am the most miserable man on the earth. Ninth richest man in American history, his dying breath was, I'm the most miserable man on earth. And I could tell you story after story after story. Just a few years ago, with the decline in the economy, there was a serial number of suicides among CEOs and executives as one company after another hit the floor. And suddenly this God that they had trusted in proved to be unreliable. Or more recently, so that you don't think this is something from the past, ABC reported this survey that was done among some of the wealthiest families in our country. And the, the final report of this survey was staggering. Let me let me give you what it was. In this survey, about 165 households were surveyed. No one was there asking them questions. They simply logged into a computer and freely confessed their thoughts. 165 households. To be qualified for the survey, you had to have a minimum of $25 million in assets. But the net worth of these 165 participants was $78 million. Hear that again. So this survey was done about 165 households. $78 million was the net worth of these folks, the average, average. And here was the conclusion. It says this, the respondents turn out to be a generally dissatisfied lot whose money has contributed to deep anxieties involving love, work, and family, Indeed, they are frequently dissatisfied even with their sizable fortunes. Most of them still do not consider themselves financially secure. For that, they say, they would require, on average, one quarter more wealth than they currently possess. This is not a long time ago. Survey done among 165 of our current richest folks, averaging $78 million. And did you hear how they're described? Generally, a dissatisfied bunch whose money has contributed to deep anxiety in their life and trouble with love, work, family. And who are convinced they are still not financially secure. And if they could just have a little bit more, they would be. Now, before your heart goes, those greedy people, can I tell you, it makes no difference whether you make 78,000 or 78 million, the human heart will not have enough if you love money. The desire to be rich will never be enough. It makes no difference. You could have all the money in the world. I- if I could say it a clever or 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 skillful way I would, but here's the reality you can have all the money in the world if you do not treasure God above all things, you will be dirt poor in the things that matter. You can have all the money in the world if you do not treasure God above all things, you will be dirt poor in the things that matter. And he warns of what a love for money does. It ruins, it destroys Through this craving, many have wandered away. They have impaled themselves with many pangs. And the reality is, if you do not treasure God, you will be dirt poor in the things that matter. And in this passage, he wants to even remind you, by the way, that's where we're all headed dirt and poor. You were dirt, you will be dirt. You came in poor, you're going to go out poor. You know why? Verse 7, listen to what it says. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. He just wants to remind you the cold reality, which is, listen, you can pursue to grab as much stuff as you want, but you'll go out the way you came in. You came in naked with nothing in your hands, you're going to go out naked with nothing in your hands. Someone cleverly and wisely once said, have you noticed there's never a U-Haul attached to the hearse, right? You've seen funeral possessions, you've never seen a U-Haul because you take nothing with you. You can accumulate all that you want. You will go out as you came in with nothing in your hands. In fact, the only thing you'll be able to leave this earth with is whether your heart was rich in love towards God or bankrupt in love towards God. And that will be counted on the last day. Whether your heart was rich in love towards God or poor, dirt poor, in love towards God, that alone you can take with you, nothing else. So then, in this passage, if love for money and a desire to be rich is this problem that comes with these host of problems, what's the solution? If covetousness is the damage, what's the repair? One word, contentment. Contentment. Look at verse 6 and verse 8. This is what it says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And then verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But godliness with contentment is great gain. He, remember what Paul's doing. Paul has just finished talking to these false teachers that were using religion to get a buck. They had imagined, verse 8, that godliness was a means of gain. And so Paul turns it on them and ironically uses the same phrase and says, There is gain. In fact, he uses great gain, financial term. He's saying, Look, there is wealth. No, not just wealth, mega wealth. There is riches, not just riches, mega riches. There is profit and dividends and yields you can't imagine, but it comes with contentment. With godliness and contentment, there is great gain. And he goes on to say, listen, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. I want you to pay attention. The text is not saying that food and clothing is all that you can have. It's not setting um, a maximum limit to what you may possess. Instead, it's setting a minimum requirement for what you need to be content, right? When you hear, with food and clothing, these we will be content, don't ignore the text and go, you know what, we already have more than that. This text, we're not obeying it anyway. No, the text is not saying food and clothing is all you can have. It is saying it's the minimum requirement of what you need to be content, And if you have more than that, you have reason for contentment. That means that everyone at Seven Mile Road Church can be content. It's not that you can't have more. It's that you don't need anything more to be content. If we have these, we can be content. This is why the Bible is so wise. Because the Bible is not shouting poverty theology. We should all be dirt poor. And the Bible is certainly not shouting prosperity theology. If you follow God, you'll all be rich. The Bible is saying, here's what contentment looks like. In fact, there's this prayer in Proverbs 30. It's going to be on the screen. I, I want you to, you're welcome to pray it with me. Let me read for you. This is, should be our prayer. It's, give me neither poverty nor riches... Feed me with the food that is needful for me lest I be full and deny you and say who is the Lord or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That's a a right prayer. It's God don't let me be so rich that I forget you or or so poor that I steal but let me have what I need. And contentment is Finally being able to see that you have all that you need, right? When you're coveting, you're blind to what you have. You see only what you don't. When you're content, you finally see what you have and that you have all that you need. Let me say this and then I'll close. If you're content, you will finally begin to see that what you need, you already have. And by that, I don't even just mean material possessions, I'm saying that what you have in God means that your heart already has everything that you need. If you're here and I were to ask you to ask yourself honestly, do I desire to be rich and do I love money, verse 9 and 10, and you were to be able to answer that honestly, if I were to ask underneath that, why? Why do you want money? Why do you want to be rich? There, then there would be some more honest answers. For some of us, we'd say, look, I'm not trying to be greedy. It's just money provides security. What I really am after is security. I'm not looking to get a lot of stuff. I just want the future to be secure. I want the kids to be okay. I want my wife or husband to be okay. I I just want security. Let me read you a verse. Hebrews 13, verse 5. It says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what can man do to me I want you to hear that because this verse is astounding I didn't see it till yesterday this verse has a command to be content right it's there keep your lo- life free from the love of money be content with what you have but this command is not a naked command This command is not just go from here and be content. That's what I want you to take away from the sermon. This command is here's the reason you can be content. Here's the ground for contentment. It's you want security? Well, here's the promise I will never leave you nor forsake you. You don't have to be afraid. What can man do to me? We can say that with confidence. The ground for contentment is, look, the security you're looking for from money, you already have. So you tell me, what are you going to bank on? Some dollars in your bank account or the God who comes and hugs you within himself, envelops you and says, I'm never going to leave and I'm never going to forsake you. I'm here right now and I'll be here when the kids need to go to college and I promise I'll be here when you retire. I'm never leaving. I'm never going to forsake you. Security is what you want. Well, security is what you have. Security in God that can't be bought with dollars. Look, you have the choice. You're either going to find security in dollars or in the God who promised, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. When the hard times come, when finally you begin to see that money can't be banked on, I'll still be there. There's a verse in the Proverbs that says, if you set your heart on wealth, it sprouts wings and flies away because that's how temporary money is. And Jesus is here saying, look, the security you long for, it's found in my never-leaving, ever-present presence, and it will be with you always. Some of you say, look, what I really want is, I'm not greedy. I'm not not trying to be rich for myself. It's just, you know, there's certain comforts and pleasures that come. There's stuff you can have and stuff you can buy and stuff you can do. There's a comfort and pleasure that comes from having money. Your heart's out for comfort. It's out for pleasure. Psalm 16, verse 11. You have shown to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasure forevermore. Am I telling you to deny your heart pleasure? No, I'm saying you're settling for way too little. It's not that you desire too much, it's that you desire too little. You're settling for temporary, momentary pleasure, and God's saying, in my presence, there is fullness. You business-savvy, money-savvy people, is there better than fullness? Or is there a better investment than forever? In my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Are you going to do a better investment than forevermore? What you need, you already have in Jesus Christ. Don't trade security in him for the love of money or or comfort and pleasure from him for riches. Or some of you, and this will be the last one, some of you will say, listen, the reason I need money or want to be rich is, is because deep down, It means I'm something. Deep down, some of you know you're pursuing wealth. You're sacrificing family even so that you can get that next promotion so that you can get wealthy. And deep down, you know that that's going to mean you're finally worth something. It'll mean that you're important. Everyone will know that you're successful. It'll finally give you a sense of worth and value. If I have those letters next to my name, if I have that title before my name, if I drive that, if I live there, it'll mean I'm worth something. Let me read you one more verse. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You are banking on your bank account to give you worth. And yet the Bible is saying, listen, God has already established your worth. And to have you, to ransom you, he didn't give something perishable like gold or silver. He spent that which was most precious and most priceless in the whole world to have you. That's your worth. You want to know what you're worth? You were worth the blood of Jesus poured out for you the body of Jesus broken for you. That's how God set your worth. The Bible's saying, listen, if you could have been bought with money, he would have done that. Psalm 50 says he owns everything, and yet you were worth to him something that couldn't be bought with all the money in the world. I want you to hear that again. God owns everything, Psalm 50 says, and yet everything he owned was wasn't enough to buy you. To buy you meant he had to spend something more, his own life. He had to spill his own blood. He's established your worth as being more costly than all the money in the world. So why are you going to trade the worth you have in God for the fluctuating worth you have in your bank accounts or in your riches or in your wealth? Don't you see that that's a bad deal? You already have beyond the money of this world worth, and a few dollars is not going to add to that. In fact, banking on it is going to reduce the infinite worth that God already thinks of you. He bought you, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. So the text is saying, listen, all the things that you need, Jesus already gave you for free. And all the money in the world can't buy the things that Jesus has already given you for free. All the money in the world can't buy you the things that Jesus has already given you for free. And so the question is, Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Is the fact that he loved you enough? Is the fact that he has provided for you enough? Is the fact that he died for you enough? Is the fact that he shed his blood for you enough? Is the fact that he rose you again and promised you a seat in heaven enough? Is the fact that he has given you riches beyond this world enough? Is the fact that you will inherit all things the universe will be something you reign over enough if you don't get any of that blank whatever your thing is and this life goes even from bad to worse is having Jesus enough because I'm telling you he has already given all that you need and he's given it to you for free so then you can be content let's pray